Good morning, Genesis Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. My name's Tim Lorman, and my wife, uh, the cute one who was just reading there a minute ago, uh, we've been a part of Genesis here now for seven years. And uh, it's a great joy for me to be able to preach God's word to you today. Let's, uh, let's focus our attention on the Lord. Father, we look towards you in this moment. Lord, we want to, to know you more. We wanna see your face. We wanna see your mighty deeds of old, not the deeds of any man, but we wanna see the workings of God. And I would say our, our prayer more than anything is Spirit of God, those workings would not just stay in a book from ancient times, but they would come into reality in our lives. Oh, would we see the works of God in our day? Would we see you do mighty things in our time, Father? You are the same God as in Samson's time as you are today. Please shake us out of the, the hum of busyness of this world into the reality of what you're doing moment by moment in this world, Father. Please, revive our hearts. We grow cold so quickly. Work in our midst this morning, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. I wanna start off by reading to you the first verse from our passage, chapter 13 and verse one. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. So the cycle of sin begins again in the book of Judges. The story of Judges has really been a tragedy which we have watched over these last few weeks, week after week, and now we go even further into Israel's abandonment of their God. I like the way Hans put it last week. It's like a spiral staircase down and down and down into darkness is what Israel is doing. They're going further and further into abandonment of God, further and further into disobedience, further and further looking just like every other nation. And at this point, there really is not much distinction between Israel and the other nations. It's important to note that in the four chapters that we're about to look at, Usually in the cycle, Israel at some point cries out to God. But notice in this passage, we will see that Israel does not collectively cry out to God at all. They are in darkness at this moment. They, they don't even know how to cry out to God. It's into this darkest of times in Judges that God sends the greatest, the most gifted, the most capable, the most spirit-filled of the judges, but only to see this judge fail just like every other one. So the question is, why would God do that? Question for you to consider is, why would God give a judge at this darkest of times only to see him fail, really almost from the beginning? I've heard some say he got off to a good start. Well, God got off to a good start. I don't even think Samson got off to a good start. So what is God looking to communicate 
What is the, the author of Judges looking to communicate? Because we have to think, you know, this is a, a narrative. It's really a, a tragedy as far as a genre of literature. The author is looking to communicate something to us, and really God's looking to communicate something to us. What is that? I think what he's looking to show us, and what I hope we see this morning, is that there's really only one who remains faithful. There's only one who is always constant. There's only one who remains the same throughout all circumstances. That is God. Jehovah alone remains constant. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, at the end of the Old Testament, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Hear that for yourself this morning. That's what we're going to learn. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. The main point of our text this morning is this. God remains faithful even as Samson is faithless. God remains faithful as even Samson is faithless in pretty much every way. The story of Samson is really developed around four women in Samson's life. The first woman we'll see is Samson's mother, an Israelite woman. The next three women in Samson's life are all foreign Philistine women. We have a Temnite woman, we have a harlot from Gaza, and then we have Delilah. The four chapters of, Sam, of Samson's story is really three movements within these four chapters. We're gonna follow these three movements. The first movement is in chapter 13, and it's Samson's calling. Then we're gonna move to the bulk of the text, which is chapters 14 through most of 16 is Samson's life of lust. And lastly, in chapter 16 at the end, we're gonna see Samson's death. So we have these three movements and within each one of these movements, there's a subpoint which the author is trying to drive home. It really all points back to the main point. So our main point again is God remains faithful even as Samson is faithless. And these subpoints within that are this. First, in Samson's calling, you're going to see that God is given, gave Samson everything he needed to fulfill his life as a judge and to deliver Israel. In Samson's life of lust, we're going to see that Samson's greatest enemy was not the thousands and thousands of Philistine armies that he saw. His greatest enemy was his own sinful heart the lust of his own heart. We're gonna see that in detail. And lastly, in Samson's death, we're gonna see that God is the one who receives all glory. He alone receives all glory. And my my prayer as I've just been thinking about this is I realize with a statement like God remains faithful when Samson is faithless, that it's easy for us to hear a statement like that because we know it, we believe it, we repeat it. But guys, my hope is that, that it will sink into our hearts, that the Spirit of God, even this morning, will breathe the reality of that word on your hearts. Guys, God remains faithful even as you are faithless. 
God remains faithful. He alone is great. He alone is faithful. So let's jump into Samson's calling. Chapter 13. Our main point here is that God gave Samson everything that he needed to be a judge and deliver Israel. Samson had everything and then some to be faithful. We're going to see an angelic pronouncement before he was even born. If you think about that, there's only one other man in the Old Testament and two in the New Testament that had an angelic pronouncement before birth. Isaac in the Old Testament and Jesus and John the Baptist in the New Testament. And Samson's lumped in with this, guys. He's called before birth to a Nazarite vow. There's a clear calling, a statement that he will deliver Israel. He's given godly parents. He's blessed of God. And the power of the Spirit is on him like none of the other judges. So let's look here and see the angelic pronouncement over Samson. Starting in verse 2 through 5. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, who was Manoah, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the end of the Philistines. So the author here is setting up the story. He starts by describing in verse 2 Manoah, from, from the family of Zorah and from the clan or the tribe of Dan. And he moves to his wife. The wife is barren. We never get Samson's mother's name, but then we have the angel who appears to the woman. And the angel says to the woman, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Be careful. This is the angel speaking to the woman. Be careful not to drink wine nor eat anything unclean. It's interesting. He's focusing on her as well. You will have a son and no razor shall come upon his head for he shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Before birth, this angel gives Samson the vow of a Nazarite. So number six lays out what it meant to be a Nazarite. So a Nazarite is someone who either for a period of time or even a whole, whole lifetime decides to devote their lives fully to God. They set themselves apart for complete devotion. There are certain rules that they follow as a Nazarite as a, as a bare minimum. No wine or strong drink or even any type of fruit from the grape should touch their lips. They should not touch any dead bodies, and there should be no cutting of their hair as a sign of their devotion. It's as if God is saying with Samson and this Nazarite vow before he's even born, all right, Israel, you, you all have failed again and again. I'm gonna give you all with Samson, someone who seems to be pure and right even before he's born, devoted and set apart. It's interesting to see here that in the midst, in the midst of this pronouncement to the angel, 
from the angel, the angel is focused as much on the mother and her own devotion and being set apart as she is on Samson. It's an interesting note, and I'm going to bring that back here in this second appearance. So the woman goes and tells her husband, Manoah, I've seen an angel. Manoah decides, as any good man does, that he doesn't have enough information. He needs some more. So he asks God for the angel to come again. The angel appears to Manoah, Manoah's wife again, and she runs quickly to get her husband. Manoah comes and he asks the angel this. Now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? Interesting. Manoah wants to know how to raise this boy. Listen to what the angel says. So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, let the woman pay attention. Let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, nor eat anything unclean. Let her observe all that I commanded you. Notice this. Manoah is here wanting to know how he's supposed to raise this boy. That doesn't seem to be a concern of the angel at this moment. The angel is concerned about the holiness and the devotion of the woman to God. You have to see this point here. The faithfulness of God is seen in that he calls every man, every woman, every child to complete and total devotion. That is the good of Manoah's wife. That is the good of Samson. That is the good of you and it's the good of me. Complete, uh, God calling you to complete and total devotion. Here's the trouble. You and I, we do this dirty, scary math that we think is logical in our heads. And it goes something like this. As long as I get the big items of life right, the details of inner devotion to the Lord are just not as important. Have you ever realized an honest moment that you may be doing that math? As long as I pick the right job, as long as I show up to church, as long as I raise good, wholesome children, as long as I choose the right path, help them choose the right path, as long as I join a community group and share my faith with others, then it's completely fine if I neglect the Lord day after day in prayer and in the word. It's okay then if I just every now and again look at pornography. It's all right if I treat my spouse poorly and I'm harsh and I'm mean to them. It's okay if I gossip about a brother or a sister who's made in the image of Christ. Children, you may be saying, it's okay if I am selfish towards my siblings or if I have a bad attitude toward my parents. This math does not work with God. He desires and he will have complete and total obedience. That is what he requires of us. Not partial, not just externals, but he wants your heart. He wants all of you. And this is truly the faithfulness of God. You have to see this. This is the goodness of God to you again and again to Old Testament Israel. God would give commands and then he would say, this is your good to follow me, 
to follow me with all of your heart. So we continue on with the story of Manoah, and Manoah decides to offer the angel dinner. He wants to, to roast a lamb and, and offer it for dinner. The, the angel says, no, take that lamb and offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And then Manoah, he's, uh, you know, he's always asking questions, that's good. He asks the angel, what is your name? The angel says, why do you ask my name, seen as it is wonderful? And then Manoah offers a sacrifice and the angel ascends in the sacrifice up into heaven. Manoah and his wife fall on their faces and say, we will surely die for we have seen God. Now I'll leave that to the smarter folks in the room to determine whether that was a pre-incarnate version of Christ. (laughs) Many say so, but uh, anyways, regardless, God has just revealed himself through this angel to Manoah and his wife in a beautiful way. It's as if he's putting an exclamation mark on Samson in this calling. If, it's, if he is saying, this, this man is special, he's gonna do something great for my name. The last two verses in 13 say, uh, 24, the woman then gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanaadan between Zorah and Ashtael. The summary of Samson's calling. God had been faithful and had blessed Samson with more than any of the other judges. God had come to Samson with an angelic pronouncement unlike just a few more, only a few others. God had called Samson to be a deliverer. He'd given him a Nazarite vow and had set him apart. God had given him godly parents to raise him the right way. God blessed him and God gave him the spirit more than any of the other judges. God was faithful. And here's the truth and the reality for you and for us. For us as the bride of Christ, for us as Genesis specifically, and for you individually. God has given you everything. God has given you everything that you need to live the godly life that he has called you to. God has called you before the foundation of the earth. Do you know that? He knew you and loved you, not before your birth, but before the foundation of the world. God has given you a great commission. No, he has given you the greatest of commissions to go and make disciples of all the nations, starting right where you live. God has given you a pathway of devotion And not just external devotion, he has come and he's given you a new heart so you can follow wholeheartedly from your heart. God has given you not just earthly parents who are sinful, God himself is your father. The blessing of God is upon you as a saint of the most high. And you have been baptized as a follower of Christ in the Holy Spirit. Power from on high to be a witness. 
So I would ask you, what else do we need, do you need to live out the godly calling that the Lord has called you to? Nothing. You have, we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. If you just need a, a, an, an item for personal reflection from here, take a promise from God like 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. You have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness and just dwell on that reality. So we have seen here God's faithfulness to Samson. Let's now move to Samson and his life of lust. Chapters 14 through 16. And uh, I publicly want to say thank, thank you, Hans, for giving me the novice four, four chapters to preach on from the book of Judges. Samson's, in Samson's life of lust, what we're going to see is Samson's greatest enemy to fulfilling God's calling was his own sinful lust. Samson's life of lust and his yearning after, after things other than God follows three women. We mentioned before, a Temnite woman, a harlot from Gaza, and Delilah from the Valley of Sorek. Let's read chapter 14, starting in verse one through four. Then Samson went down to Temnah and saw a woman in Temnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came so he came back and told his father and his mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. This is almost caveman-like here. Then his father and his mother said to him, is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you should go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me for she looks good to me. It's interesting to notice here in verse one, it says Samson saw a Temanite woman. Underline that word, take note of that word because it's a pattern that we're gonna see as we move along in the story. He saw a Temanite woman from the daughters of the Philistines. His father and his mother tried to persuade him to find a wife among his own people. But Samson really doesn't care about that. Samson says, no, get her for me, for she looks good to me. That phrase, get her for me, your Bible may actually interpret it, or there may be a note, that actually means she looks right for me in my own eyes. The repeated saying again and again of Israel in the book of Judges, they only did what was right in their own eyes. And Samson, that is really the summary of the life of Samson. The only thing he cared about was what was right in his own eyes. He was only concerned about satisfying his own lusts. No regard for God's command not to intermarry with the foreign nations. No regard for his Nazarite vow. No regard, no fear of God at all in Samson. The only time he interacts with God, except in his death, is when he pridefully needs something from God. Verse four, however, his father and his mother did not know that it was of the Lord. For he, that's a capital H, 
he, one of the many reasons I like the NASB, he, Jehovah, was seeking an occasion against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at that time. Get this, even in the midst of Samson's lust, even in the midst of his lack of regard for God, God is still faithful. God is still moving. God is still destroying the enemies of Samson, the enemies of Israel. So we see for the rest of chapter 14 and into chapter 15, the details surrounding Samson's hopeful marriage to the Timnite woman. There's a seven-day marriage feast. There's a riddle from Samson. Enticement and deception. I have to throw in here for my son Job because he was asking about the lion and the honey. Yes, there is a lion that he kills. And then he goes back and he grabs honey out of the belly of, of the lion. There is enticement and deception. There are 300 foxes that Samson ties tail to tail and sets them loose with fire to burn up the grain of the Philistines. Samson's bride is then burned to death by her own people, her and her family. There's killing, there's more killing, and then there's even more killing. Then, towards the end of 15, while Samson is holed up in a cave somewhere, Judah, God's special people within his special people, comes to Samson, 3,000 of them, and says, Samson, don't you realize we're enslaved to the Philistines? We're taking you up and we're delivering you over to the Philistines. So Samson goes with them, bound. And when he gets to the Philistines, he breaks the cords, grabs a jawbone of the donkey, and kills a thousand men. Now it's, it's important to see, again, the spirit of the Lord came upon him to accomplish this. Once he's done with this, we get what I think you just have to call some type of ancient rap or poem or spoken word. I almost want to call Derek up here to do this for, for me because, you know, I might butcher it. But uh, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. Then he takes the jawbone and just drops it. It's got to be a mic drop right there. After all of this, in verse 18, Samson says this, then Samson became very thirsty and he called to the Lord and said, you have given me this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. Now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But God, but God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that water came out of it. And when he drank, his strength returned and he was revived. Therefore, he named it En Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. Samson became very thirsty after destroying, defeating a thousand men. And really he brings nothing more to a complaint, a prideful complaint. God, I've just destroyed a thousand. I've just defeated a thousand men for you. And now you're gonna let me die of thirst? Praise God that God did not give Samson what he deserved in that moment right there. God in his abundant grace, his abundant mercy, 
In that moment, he splits the hollow, he splits the rock in that place, and water gushes forth, and Samson is revived, and his strength is given back to him. We move from the story of the Temanite woman into, in chapter 16, the harlot from Gaza, verses one through three. There's a harlot. He saw, again, it's important you see this, he saw with his eyes and he went and had relations with a harlot from Gaza. Again, the, the only thing I want you to notice is Samson is just simply doing whatever he finds to be right in his own eyes. No regard for God. No regard for his dedication to him. Samson only cares about his own lust, his own desires. And now we move to Delilah from the Valley of Sorek, chapter 16, verses four through 21. Verse four says, after this, it came about that he loved a woman in the Valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. The first two women, he saw a Temanite woman. He saw a harlot. It says he loved Delilah. Delilah means night. Samson, this man called Delight, this man called to a separate life devoted to God is now lying down with darkness. There is always a direction to sin. There's always a direction to sin. More commitment is required each time. Do you realize this with your own heart? Your heart is always flowing in a direction either toward God and deeper love, affection, fellowship, sweetness, and life, or either deeper into sin. That's right, God saves holy, but guys, be careful. There's many warnings in the New Testament from those who slide away in the faith because they are given over to their own sin. Which way is your heart flowing, even in this moment? Which way is your heart flowing? Do you know that even in this moment right now, you can just cry out to the living God? You can just cry out and say, God, help. The most wondrous prayers of all are the simple ones. God, help, please, help me. If your heart is flowing towards sin, a love for it, be honest. Cry out even now to the living God. He's here. In chapter, or in verses five through 14, we see three attempts to capture Samson. Verse five says, the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, entice him and see where his strength lies and show and, uh, lies and how we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him. Then we will give each of you, a, we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. The Philistines say to Delilah, we will pay you 1,100 pieces of silver if you can entice Samson to find where his strength lies. This is the question. The author is drawing us into this question. Where does Samson's strength really lie? 
Samson's confused about this question. The author wants us to see it in a really stark contrast here in the story of Delilah. So let's look here. Three times, Samson deceives Delilah as to the source of his strength and stops the attacks from the Philistines. And then on the fourth attempt, in 15, verses 15 through 20, we find out the true source of Samson's strength. Verses 15, then Samson said to Delilah, said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your strength is. And it came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. Samson was just concerned about himself again. What annoys him? Verse 17, catch this. A razor has never come to my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. Even Samson in this moment, is convinced that the issue is just simply whether he has long hair or not. Samson thinks that's the real issue. It's almost comical. If you cut off my hair, then I won't have any strength. Is that the real issue here, whether Samson has long hair or not? I would say no. The real issue with Samson's strength is this. It was not the length of the hair, but it was lack of trust, lack of obedience, lack of confidence in the one who actually had all strength and all might and all power. Now we see the tragedy of Samson in summary. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up once more, for he has told me all that was in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Then she began to afflict him and his strength left him. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains and he was a grinder in the prison. Samson has so given in to the lust. He's so given in to sin. His eyes are not even gouged out yet and the man is blind. The man does not see it to where he shares his heart and then he lays down right on Delilah's lap. I mean, that's kind of like us dudes too, pretty, pretty stupid. I mean, very stupid. What I really think here is reflected in Samson is that I think, he's, I think he's really convinced that God would not leave him. I think his heart is so full of pride. He thinks he's done all these great things for God that God would never abandon him. So Delilah cuts off Samson's hair as he sleeps. Then she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And see the tragedy. Samson awakes from his sleep 
only to find that the spirit has departed from him. The true source of Samson's strength is revealed, not his hair, but his God. His God has left him. The Philistines gouge out his eyes and made him a grinder in the prison. We see in Samson's life of lust that he was given everything that he needed to fulfill God's calling on his life. Yet the vast amount of enemies that Samson faced, none of them were the biggest enemy. The biggest enemy was his own heart that was going and lusting towards other things other than God. His sexual desire, his pride, his anger, his lack of fear of God, those are the things that led to his destruction. And here's the reality that you have to know for yourself. Here's what you need to know for you. I need to know it. We need to know it as a church. We're not all that different from Samson. We have been given a great calling by God. I described it earlier. You've been called to great things. Your greatest hindrance to you fulfilling what God has called you to in your life is your own heart, your own desire going towards things other than God. The greatest hindrance from us accomplishing what God wants us to do as Genesis Community Church, to make disciples of all the nations and to make the name of Jesus known, the greatest hindrance is our own sinful hearts, is the own pride of heart, is our lack of fear towards God. The lack of having God consuming our thoughts constantly, he deserves that. Our apathy, a coldness of heart, a lack of crying out to the God, the only God who is strong and can save. But here's the reality as we move into Samson's death. There is great hope. In the midst of helplessness is where hope is found. In the midst of death is where hope is found for us, for Samson, for Israel. In Samson's death, here through the end of 16, what we're gonna see is that God alone is the one who receives all glory. In verses 23 and 24, we see the lords of the Philistines, they're, they're gathered together and they're offering sacrifices to their great, their great God, Dagon, they're rejoicing, they're feasting in a great house. And they, just, they say, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands, verse 23. At some point as they're feasting and celebrating, getting a little loose, in verse 25, Samson is brought out for mockery and entertainment so that the Philistines can boast in their God. Samson is led out by a boy, blind, before it took an army of 3,000 to contain him, now a little boy is dragging him along. Let me ask you all a question. Do you think God, Jehovah, the creator of heaven and earth, the true and living God will allow his name to be mocked and a false God to receive glory? No. No, he will not. Verse 26 and 27, see the good providence of our God. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, 
Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I might lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And about 3,000 men and women were on the roof, looking on while Samson was amusing them. In the perfect providence of God, a boy leads Samson to two pillars which hold the whole weight of, of the whole structure. Samson, God, God even in this moment determines still to use Samson. Remember his calling. You will begin to deliver Israel. Yet what's the difference here? We have a broken, humbled, rightly thinking Samson at this moment who knows how to cry out in the right way and brokenness, not in pride. Why? Why do you think God would determine to move in this way with Samson? He would determine to destroy all of the Philistines, 3,000, so that it would be made clear that the strength does not lie in the strength of any man's arms and how long your hair is and how large your army is, but in how great and marvelous and strong God is. God will not allow the fame of his name to be mocked. And in this moment of broken humility, Samson cries out to the living God, broken humility, how sweet, how sweet broken humility is to the Lord. Verse 28, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson bent the two pillars with all of his might so that 3,000 Philistines are killed at his death. More than all the Philistines killed during his life are killed in this one moment. God will not suffer his name to be mocked. God will ultimately receive all glory. Above all, God's faithfulness is to the glory of his own name. The sooner you and I can realize that, the better. Brother, sister, in the midst of your circumstances, God's greatest faithfulness is that he is faithful to his name. He is faithful to himself. And that then leads to your good and your salvation. In closing, just want to say this. <clears throat> God uses even the most severe consequences of the sin of men to magnify his name. God uses even the most severe of consequences from men's sin to magnify his name. We see that here in the death of Samson. Clearly, we see that in that story. But really, there's a greater story that's to be told. Nowhere do we see the reality of how the severe consequences of sin lead to the greatest glory to God than at the cross of Jesus Christ. Nowhere do we see that. Hear this from Acts 2 in verse 23. Peter, 
the apostle preaching in his day to the backslidden Jews. Still backslidden. Hear this, he's preaching to the Jews and he says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. The sin, the jealousy, the pride of the Jews led them to crucify God's own son. Yet God had a much different plan in place. God used the means of Jews' sins to bring salvation to the entire world. He raised Jesus from the dead. This is the beauty of the message of the gospel. It's the wonder, it's the glory that God alone can bring salvation and he does it even through the sinful actions of men. So last closing thought, I would just say this as we are moving to communion. Even now with the eyes of your heart, just set your attention on the love and goodness of our Father which is displayed in the communion we're about to take. God demonstrates in this work of of Samson how glorious, how strong he is, how faithless Samson was. Communion communicates the same thing. It is our sin. It is our wrongdoing, which is part of why Jesus had to go to the cross. Yet know that at that cross, there is a grace which is greater than all of your sin. There's a grace so much greater, and it's there for you. So I would just encourage you in this moment as we go to communion, set the eyes of your heart on Jesus, on his death, his resurrection, his new life for you.